Uh, before I begin my message, I just wanted to uh, follow up. I know uh, Jim mentioned it, the events in Charlottesville uh, during the prayer, uh, but just want to say uh, unequivocally that there is no room for, in God's kingdom and in God's people, for bigotry or hatred or for uh, racism. And so as a people, God's people, we are called to pray that God's truth and grace and healing uh, and love would grow in us and through us and certainly in and through our, our country. This is the last Sunday before school starts in Sinai. It's also the last Sunday that we'll be looking at the Psalms uh, this summer. And we looked at a lot of Psalms, a variety of topics, and today we come to Psalm 150, which is the last Psalm in the Psalter. And, and the theme of this psalm is, is really hard to miss. It's, it's right there. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him on and on. Thirteen times in six short verses, we're told to praise God, which means we should probably pay attention to that, shouldn't we? You know, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrote this. The world is always singing praises. Just not always God's. Isn't that true? The world is always singing praises. We're always singing praises. For example, when you discover a, a new restaurant and you just you, you have an incredible experience, what do you want to do? You want to sing its praises. Hey, you've got to check this place out. It's amazing. Best steak I've ever had. Or you go on a, a, a vacation somewhere and you come back and say, you've got to go to this resort. It's like the next best thing to heaven on earth. Or maybe you meet somebody and you think they're the one. You sing that person's praises. You just have to tell others, I think she's the one. I can't believe she, she loves me. You know, she's the most amazing, beautiful, kind, giving person I've ever met. Or it even goes into the areas of our experiences. You might say, you've got to go. You have to go to a football game at K-State. Or you have to go to a basketball game at Allen Fieldhouse. It's an experience you won't forget. Instinctively, innately, we offer praise. We shower praise on the things that are most important to us, that impact us. C.S. Lewis was right. The world is always singing praises, just not always God's. Now, praise and worship certainly are tied together. We, we talk about singing praises. We're told in Psalm 150 to sing God's praise. Um, we, we just finished singing God's praise. But why, does, why is that so important? Why is it such a prominent theme in the scriptures and in our passage for today? Well, part of what it means to be a human being created in God's image is that we are created for a relationship with God. We are created to worship Him. We are created for worship. And, and the center and source of that relationship is to be our praise of Him. And whether we realize it or admit it, we are constantly worshiping or singing the praises of something or someone through our thoughts, our words, our actions, our, our choices, even if it's a poor facsimile of the real thing. You know, my earliest memories of singing praise to God, of worship, were in a, a little country church called Morgan Chapel. And uh, average attendance might be 15 to 20, but high Sundays when I was growing up was 40 or 50. I mean, it was bursting at the seams at that point. Uh, the singing wasn't always on key, but it was always enthusiastic. And old saints of the faiths would sing at the top of their lungs and they would kneel in prayer with power and certainty. 
that their prayers made a difference, that God was listening, that He cared, that He was real. And the, and the teaching in Sunday school and the preaching challenged us to give our lives completely over to Jesus and to spread the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Since then, I've worshipped in a variety of settings. I've worshipped in large churches, in conferences. I've worshipped in other countries, in different languages. I've worshipped outdoors as I was hiking in the mountains or going for a run. I've worshipped by myself and with a small group of close friends. I've worshipped in a room full of strangers. I've known God's presence and worshipped through a variety of ways, through music of hymns and praise choruses. Uh, through liturgy, through silence, through communion, through celebration, through the word read or preached. Many of you, no doubt, could testify to similar experiences of worship. So if we can worship with God in a variety of ways, or in a variety of settings, with a variety of people, what are we to say about worship today? There's a lot to say, but what we're going to be doing is, is focusing on a few things. First, let's begin where where worship starts. There's a French proverb that says, a good meal ought to begin with hunger. It's hard to enjoy a really good meal if you're stuffed, if you're not hungry, right? But if you're hungry, just about anything tastes good, if you're hungry enough. When we approach worship with a hunger for God, starving for a spiritual connection with Him, We'll engage in true worship. We'll be satisfied. We'll be fulfilled. But if we enter into worship with little or no appetite for God, then we should not be surprised if we leave unfed, dissatisfied, frustrated, or apathetic. Jesus said this about hunger for God in Matthew 5. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled this hunger Jesus is talking about is this need for God, a deep inner longing for Him that all of us as human beings have. It's where worship begins. Hunger for God is the precursor for an encounter with the living God. Now, a couple of caveats, a couple of sides. When people are truly hungry, they're generally not too picky about what they eat or about what's served. Another note, you create physical hunger by a lack of food. If you want your kid to eat their supper, you don't give them snacks all day long. If you don't give them enough to eat, if if you don't eat enough, you're going to become hungry. And you'll eat healthy stuff, hopefully, not snacks. But spiritually, it can actually work the other way. Lack of time with God can actually dull our spiritual hunger and our sensitivity to His Spirit. While regular time with the Lord through worship and prayer and Bible study and service And personal corporate worship will increase our desire and our hunger for more of God. So, having said that, let's look at a passage. Psalm 150 is kind of a bookend today. We're going to begin with it, we're going to end with it, but in the middle I want to look at another passage, an Old Testament passage. It's one of my favorites on worship. It's out of Isaiah 6, and I'll read it for you, and it will be on the screen behind you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphs each with six wings with two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another holy 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 is the lord god almighty 
The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a, a live coal from, in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I, speaking of Isaiah, said, Here am I. Send me. So there are four things I want to draw out of this passage before we conclude with Psalm 150. Four statements that we can make about, about worship. First, worship must begin with seeing God for who He really is. It must begin there. True worship is to be transformational. And for transformation to happen, we must encounter God in all aspects of who He is. We need to have a clear understanding of who He is and who we are, who we are, who we are, we are encountering when we, when we come into worship. You know, without getting into politics, one of the things that's always fascinated me is, is during presidential campaigns or inaugurations or presidential parades and things like that, people just crowd around them. You know, this is this kind of this celebrity thing. And regardless of who the president is, whether it's Bush or Obama or Trump or Clinton or whoever, people, people want to shake their hands. At least some people want to shake their hands. And, and, and they won't forget the day that they shook the president's hand because they're in presence of somebody who had power who kind of transcended normal life. Well, in worship, when we are, in the presence of, we are in the presence of unimaginable power and goodness and holiness, and when we understand that, and when we see God for who He really is, when we focus on that, we are changed. True worship and encounter with the God who created everything should stick with us. It's, it should motivate us to tell the story over and over again of our encounter with the living God. And one of the dangers that we all have as human beings is when dealing with God is that we can tend to pick out a few aspects of his personality or characteristics and focus on those to the exclusion of others. So, for example, Scripture tells us that God through Christ can be approached with confidence. That's true. Thank God for that. Scripture also tells us that God is our friend, that he is close and personal and loving. That is also true. Thank God for that. We should emphasize that. But Scripture also tells us that we must not neglect or ignore the fact that the God that we interact with is holy, that He will hold us accountable for our lives and what we do with them, that He's all-powerful, and that He will wipe out evil when He returns. And in these verses, we see these seraphs, these heavenly creatures in God's temple, they cover their faces because they can't bear to look God in the face. And as they're doing so, they proclaim his perfection, his, his blazing holiness, and how his glory is revealed in creation. You know, there are two words that are used primarily for worship in Scripture. One of them means to literally bow down and to submit in adoration. And if we truly see God for who he is, awe and reverence and humility and a, and a holy fear, a holy respect will be our response. I think author Annie Dillard's got it right when she says, if we really had any idea of whom we're dealing with when we come to worship, we'd put on crash helmets and lash ourselves 
down to our pews or chairs. Second, worship is, is, is seeing ourselves for who we really are. I mean, true worship causes us to see our need for God, and it humbles us. In verse 5, Isaiah's response is to his view of God, Woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Paul expressed the universality of Isaiah's response in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a description of every single person. And God's standard and glory and holiness is so high and so perfect, we will never come close, even the best of us, to approaching that. You know, one way to think of it is uh, a week ago yesterday, I, was, I came in from uh, doing something and I sat down for a little snack or a break and I turned on the TV and, and uh, it happened to be that it was Usain Bolt who was racing the last time in the 100 meters. And, uh, of course, I'm like, i, I got to see this, you know. Uh, I mean, the guy's incredible. Three gold medals in the 100 meters, world records, just demolished the world records in the 100 and the 200. Um, and they did this sort of uh, backstory about all of his accomplishments and, 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 and all those things compared to other runners. Unfortunately, he lost the race. But uh, anyhow, it was close. But as, I was, as you looked at the, the backstory, you're thinking, I mean, this guy was just 6'5 and could run like the wind. At his best, nobody could come, come close. You know, and, and in a sense, you know, no matter, even, even the, even the fat, best athlete in this church, you could train as hard as you want for as long as you want. He could give you a head start, and he would demolish you. You know, in a sense, as we, as we think about God, intellectually we know that we fall short of God's standard. But it must move beyond kind of an intellectual understanding to a brokenness and to humility, a real humility before God in worship. In true worship, there is no room for pride or self-justification or comparison to others. And so standing in the presence of God, Isaiah becomes painfully aware of his own sinfulness and need. And it drives him to pronounce, I am ruined. Which is the natural response. Should be. I mean, the closer... I walk with God, and the longer I walk with God, the more I realize my own need and my own shortcomings, my own sin. So true worship begins with looking at God for who He is, seeing for who He really is, and then seeing ourselves and our need for Him. And then the third element is experiencing the mercy of God. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, "This, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So just when Isaiah thinks, I'm ruined, I don't stand a chance in this guy's presence, a seraph comes to him with a, a red-hot coal from the altar of sacrifice. And the altar of sacrifice symbolized the perfect sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God who would die for our sins and take away our sins. And so despite this huge gap between his life and God's standard, Isaiah receives mercy. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes uh, the following anecdote. He writes about the, uh, the movie, The Last Emperor. Maybe you saw it. It's about a, a young child who's anointed as the last emperor of, of China. And he has a thousand servants at his command. Whatever he wants is given him. And his little brother says, um, what happens when you do wrong? 
the boy emperor replies, when I do something wrong, somebody else is punished. And he breaks a jar on the spot and one of his servants is grabbed and beaten. And Yancey writes about this. He says, in Christianity, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the king was punished. He writes, grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. So worship involves a deep experience of God's mercy, of a deep gratitude, of unreserved joy, because when we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are and our, our need for his mercy, and he gives it to us. Worship should always include gratitude and joy and understanding of that. And if we truly grasp that, we won't limit our worship to just Sunday mornings. It'll, it'll be every day of the week in everything we are and everything that we do. Which leads us to the fourth element of worship we see here is that worship drives us or draws us into ministry. It should change us and motivate us to take risks. It should challenge us to sacrifice for God and for others. And we'll understand that worship is not primarily about what we can get out of it. It's not about our preferences, our opinions. It's not about consuming a product. It's about contributing to God's kingdom. It's about God and worshiping Him and praising Him. And the sooner we understand that and and, and let that change us, the more we're going to experience God's power and presence. Worship is supposed to shake things up. It's supposed to shake us up, to challenge our, our assumptions, to reorder our priorities, to make sure that our values are aligned with God's. Worship is to, is to convict us, to assure us, to comfort us. It's to change us, to transform us. And when people really engage in worship, People are drawn to that like a magnet. So let's review. If we're followers of Christ, our worship begins with seeing God for who he really is. And if we understand who God is and we look at ourselves honestly and authentically, it drives us to a place of humility and a place of gratitude for the mercy we receive by faith in Christ. And then worship should lead us to to ministry, to a response. It should change how we use our time and our our talents and our our money and the things we value and the things we think about. There's a thought-provoking quote about worship by Leland Reichen, a professor at Wheaton College. He writes, Earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and play at our work. Today the confusion has deepened. We worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. In worship, God deserves our very, very best. Our attention, our love, our passion, our humility. It's something that we are created to do, called to do, and we are to do it with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so I want to close with one thought and one question, and then we'll respond with some worship. The thought is this, you know, one of the priorities we have as a church is, is that of worship. And we define worship with this phrase. Worship is a wholehearted response to all that God has done and who he is. And a wholehearted response means that our worship is not to be passive, it's not to be part-time, and it's not to be partial in nature. It is to involve all that we are and all that we do. 
and it is to be motivated and sustained by all that God has done for us in Christ and by who God really is. That's the thought. But the question is this. If we are created for worship, who or what do we worship? And who or what do we give praise? Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre, with tambourine and dancing, with strings and flutes, with a clash of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have created us in Your image. You have created us for worship. Lord, we thank You that You are a God of great mercy. We look at You and we see You in Your holiness and Your perfection. And yes, Your love and Your care and Your patience. And we look at ourselves and where we fall short and how woefully we fall short. And we're humbled, Lord. And we're in need of your, your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for the grace and mercy we have through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, in view of all that, may we be people who respond with our everything we are and everything we have. And that we would be people who seek to spread your good news as a response to our encounter with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.